Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Michael Kanan will join us to discuss T-AI. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, artificial intelligence has the potential to radically reshape our world, but its development is still shrouded in misunderstanding and mystery. Joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Michael Kanan. Mr. Kanan was the first chairperson of artificial intelligence for the U.S. Air Force headquarters in Pentagon. In that role, he's authored and guided research development and implementation strategies for AI technology, machine learning activities. He's currently the director of operations for the Air Force MIT Artificial Intelligence, honored with numerous awards, including Forbes's 30 Under 30 and the Air Force's General Larry O. Spencer Award for Innovation. He has penned the new book, T-AI, Humanity's Countdown to Artificial Intelligence and the New Pursuit of Global Power. And Mr. Kanan, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Great. It's good to be here with you, Charles. Well, you're certainly a timely book, certainly a fascinating book. Before we start, why did you decide to put this book together? Uh, Let's start with the first words or uh, first sentence of the book. The countdown to artificial intelligence is over. And I really wanted those words to be impactful on the reader because the only other words they've read that are associated with this book is the countdown. And that's important because in the book and what makes it different is it's not about a bleak and dystopian future. It's not filled with hyperbole and grandiose visions or riddled with esoteric topics. It's an AI for people book. It's intended to spark the realization that the current state of AI, machine learning in particular, the distinction with the difference, of course, explained in the book, will profoundly impact our interactions and our future. If nothing changed today, our society will look distinctly different because of the application of what is right here and right now. And I'm not saying that talking about the future and topics like artificial general intelligence, which is discussed in the book, or concerns about existential risk aren't important or the conversation shouldn't be had. What I'm trying to do is make those conversations more fruitful, bring more people to the difficult topics at hand and to imagine those futures to have the foundation and context for how we could get there. You know, for myself, when there's a fire at the door, I'm not always worried about the lightning in the distance. And to be clear, in numerous ways, as illuminated throughout the narrative, there's a fire at the door. I wanted this book to inspire the conversation we should all have from all different backgrounds and careers and to realize this thing. It's uh, important, and I need to know when I see it. And ultimately, I looked back at the books that meant something to me growing up. There are books like... Uh, Sagan's Cosmos, Hawking's Universe in a nutshell. More recently, Carol's Something Different, uh, Something Deeply Hidden, and Harari Sapiens. This topic we need experience, familiarity, and understanding. And it's not just for those, you know, quote, tech people. So in the book, I explain the realities of AI from a human-oriented perspective that's easy to comprehend through our collective history of innovation, technology, because the topic is multidisciplinary. You have to know a little bit about our own evolution 
the development of language, the scales of numbers, both big and small, some basics of history, how a computer works, of course, also how our brain works. Then let's discuss what is AI. Because without the context, it's the same circular conversation where we too often speak above, past, below, and through one another. And after that, the big stuff, the global implications of AI and the cultural national vulnerabilities, competition in business and international relations alike, exposing this issue squarely on the table. For myself, I often think about AI as China's all-purpose tool to oppose in uh, authoritarian influence around the world and Russia weaponizing AI through its military systems, now infamous aggressive efforts to disrupt democracy by whatever disinformation is possible. And other nations like America and westernized ones are of course too awakening to these realities, but ultimately the reason it's a conversation for everyone is the paths we elect to follow that is our nations, our lives, our organizations. They echo loudly in most cases the political foundations and moral imperatives upon which we are formed or what we value. But in order to talk about any of those aspects in a meaningful way, we need all the legs of the tripod. And ultimately, we learn best through storytelling. Storytelling about what makes us us. And for me, the human experience is best told through the lens of AI and those stories that we talk about. And it's true as a personal hero and a thought leader for myself, Carl Sagan said, if you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. And the same goes for talking about AI. Well, the book is certainly wide ranging in that respect. I mean, it starts at early foundations to try and get everyone talking on the same page here. Maybe we should start there. So what about the evolution of our own thoughts and the evolution of computers in terms of where we are today? Well, the intent of machine learning, right? What we're talking about here, artificial intelligence. And for, for people on the line, the we often, you know, when we talk about we throw the kitchen sink out the window, we say, well, what is this thing? And the way that it's been, been traditionally defined is it's computers doing something uh, that was once deemed in the human domain, right? So we have to know a little bit about ourselves in order to understand quite how that works. But really what I think is beneficial too is to talk about what is artificial intelligence and what makes it different and in really consumable and easy ways. So right now, there was once upon a time where when we wanted to explicitly code something into a machine, we had to give it those explicit directions. We had to somehow uh, in our mind take the essence of a chair and then through language code that into a machine in mathematics. Well, the difference nowadays is that instead of having to explicitly code things, the difference is, is that we can input code expressed through our language that we can understand in our interaction with these machines. And it can discover patterns, human patterns, because ultimately we're the thing that creates data without any of that explicit coding. And it's that simple. That's the difference in today's day and age. And because it's often an intended to reflect and observe and understand human patterns and behaviors, we probably should talk about those patterns and behaviors in order to better understand it. And ultimately, you know, Einstein's often attributed the saying, you don't really understand something unless you can explain it to your grandmother. I think it's true, but at Einstein, no, my own grandmother, he would have altered his words slightly and a more precise adage would probably be your grandmother is likely the smartest person you'll ever encounter. So if she doesn't understand your explanation. It's sure that no one will, no one else will either. So that was the intent for talking about it through human anecdotal narratives. So in that sense, then, we've now devised machines that are capable of learning, taking the data that's out there and, and deriving patterns from it. 
to what extent is that implemented and how more pervasive is it becoming in computing technology today? Well, you mentioned everything at risk and all the conversations. And despite the fact it's the reason you see the ads you see every day, the news you read, the news that isn't real, you know, the, the, often the music you listen to. I'm a big Spotify fan, and I really appreciate uh, Discover Weekly and the algorithm that I've cultivated somehow. It's the fluctuation of our 401k. You could arguably blame aspects of the stock market crash on earlier applications of machine learning that a generation of millennials are still paying for, per se. But the issue is that it remains shrouded behind the cloud of mystery that you mentioned and hidden behind those complex technical terms. And I disagree. I think it's a little bit like electricity, cars, microwaves, hammers. Perhaps we aren't master electricians. We're not all race car drivers or coders like we see much in our cars today. We probably can't build a microwave. And we're not master craftspeople, but we use hammers. What we want to do is make sure that we understand it in the context enough of don't put that fork in the socket, don't put that tinfoil in the microwave. I think people are becoming more aware of the dangers of this type of technology. Much has been made about the last election. Types of technologies can be weaponized for ill purposes. Do you think the awareness, the understanding, or the concern over this this technology has now percolated out to where it's becoming more of a question for everyone? How do we actually deal with this type of technology? I think uh, absolutely. I think at this point, when I mentioned the way that it has inculcated in many of our experiences and the aspects of our, of our lives. I mean, it's how Google search works. It's, it's, it's the reason you see what you see. The conversation about the weighty issues like ethics and bias and privacy um, are important conversations to be had. And I had mentioned this isn't just for engineers. I believe truly that the future rock stars in this industry, as we had mentioned, that it has seeped its way into our life, yet we might not understand it are philosophers, ethicists, teachers, parents, and many of the traditional visions of business. Because in the digital age, because it does exist and it is all here, you're measured by application. Ultimately, it's what we do with these technologies, if we take this tool analogy, that makes the biggest difference right now. Um, And we would have the most broad and representative discussion at hand because it will affect us all and our intent making making sure that it is used in ways that are fair, that are representative of society norms and and the things that we value like human dignity. To what extent are these conversations being had? The book really talks about various levels, uh, all the way up to nations using this technology, putting in their own values or their governmental values in the use of this technology, but not acquiring or soliciting input from everyone who might be affected by the technology. Yeah, I really think about when we when we talk about the technology, you know, maybe we get to this regulatory type of conversation, but really what we want to do is we want to say, is the scope of the application, the amount of people it reaches, is it representative of its worldview? And for a computer, you know, data is akin to what experience is for us. So I would not want in my home, uh, for instance, an Alexa that was only trained on Southern white gentlemen or only people from uh, California. I would want to make sure that it is representative of the data that I put out, the things that I view that are culturally, locally, and nationally, and internationally important to me. 
reality is, is as we've mentioned, machine learning applications are designed to analyze data and formulate predictions without any overall guidance from us. But it doesn't mean that it's safe from the effects or influences of our human biases. Just because it's a computer, you know, it's an algorithms analysis and it's based on data doesn't mean its output is neutral or objectively fair. It will be the case that our human biases are reflected in our data. And when they are, it stands to reason that any subsequent analysis strategy or prediction based on it is going to be biased as well. And worse, if decisions are made or actions are taken on the bias analysis, then the underlying biases will, of course, perpetuate and possibly ingrain historical and cultural inequities even deeper into our lives that we're seeing today. And the steps necessary, you know, to ensure that doesn't happen, they're difficult to accomplish, but they're not impossible. They require conscientious and concerted efforts throughout the entire development phases of the technology, uh, throughout the way that we are interacting with machines and everyday people because it's measuring the data that we create. So when we talk about it, are the right conversations there, the intent of the book is to help create the foundation so we can have that topic of conversation. An engineer isn't you know, educated uh, or necessarily understands the same things an ethicist does or a sociologist. So we want to bring those people together to have these type of conversations. But we certainly need more than, more than what we have right now. And there are frameworks in place that do help us deal with these topics of conversations, you know, like freedom, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, you know, the things we talk about all the time. But at the same time, there will be moments where no longer that square peg is going to fit into that round hole. We need to carve out some new square pegs. Is this the modern equivalent of the old garbage in, garbage out? It's completely garbage in, garbage out. So how do we make sure that when we're working in the kitchen, we understand our ingredients? To what extent then are individuals or organizations empowered then to control the type of information to ensure that we don't put the garbage into these systems? Uh, that's an interesting question. There's sometimes a prevailing sentiment one might run across in, in our distrust in government. But to say a representative government shouldn't be a part of the AI conversation is wholly wrong. That's the point of representative governments. And um, uh, maybe we can talk about, I want to celebrate the number of ethics boards that have stood up in the commercial and private sector, the way that they've realized that there are significant implications at hand and can perpetuate the things we might not desire. You know, Amazon hiring actions, for instance, surprise, we hired more older white people. Um, but in a way, it was like looking in a mirror on ourselves. And then we can have the conversation of whether or not that needs to change. And that's what makes us special, is that the conversation takes place, because in other places, the conversation isn't even there. What we hope, though, is that in order to have that meaningful conversation, that we have some recognition of how it works and how it can play itself out in the future. The book talks about how other nations are dealing with this. How globally are these issues being handled? They're handled differently. They largely, as I mentioned before, respect a party's goals. And you know, I'm guilty of this quite often and say China is doing bad with AI. No, the Chinese Communist Party is doing wrong with AI. And I think that we need to have a, a, a more sophisticated foundation to talk about 
well, what's the result of deciding to go onto a Huawei phone and supplying that data? And we see this playing out, for instance, with TikTok right now. It's a difficult topic to argue to the average person say, you know what, I know you love the capability and the happiness or the, or the features that that app might bring to the table. But you know what? When you're using that app, you're training computer vision algorithms to house minority Muslims in China, right? To make those algorithms more performant and more robust. So we need to, you know, have a trade-off here. That's a pretty sophisticated foundation to explain how that could play itself out on a global scale. So ultimately, what, what we should think about is every nation is going to have different agendas. China Belt Road Initiative, export authoritarian models uh, of governments, you know, Russia through disinformation, public policy, by the way, uh, from the Russian Federation since 2015, that they operate uh, in a disinformation age, and that is their intent uh, to destabilize. And for us, for Americans, we hope that it's most representative and is in line with the rights that we are provided and for our citizenry. The point being is that it's playing itself out as is any conversation on an international scale. It ultimately reflects the priorities and visions of that party. What would you recommend then for individuals in terms of educating themselves and learning more about these issues? Well, of course, I'm going to say the book is there. Here's a reality. And I think it's one we should realize. This year, we're going to graduate 50,000 people with STEM-like degrees, 500,000 open jobs. But we live in a world where the barriers to education have never been lower. To be honest, I don't really care if you have a college degree traditional education space. Have you done it? Can you do it? Do you want to learn? How do we as a nation help drive down the gap is what matters. Because in only a few short years, there's going to be, you know, insert Dr. Evil reference here, one million open jobs in the space. I think right now about when we talk about education and being more interconnected, we have to reimagine that education. We often get hung up on discussing, well, how do we do more STEM? That's important, contemporary education in the space and demanding for that change at the scale needed is, you know, woefully uh, outdated and probably not even enough to fill the gap I mentioned. But we also do need humanities. And maybe that's where some of the failure to launch, uh, pun intended, the book is, is right now. I said tech people comes with a connotation. So let's change that. In the future, you know, I, I hope that it does include all walks of life, teachers, lawyers, sociologists, psychologists. And, you know, while we were in this pandemic, I think the unfortunate thing was not addressing the digital divide. Right? Because the people who are most, who are going to be most affected by AI, I mentioned patterns, right? Are the people who are not represented in data. So right now what we want to do is make sure that the education is there and it's at hand. And whatever the policies are, I think that we can all agree that we want a populace that's informed or more cognizant. Some experts, some not, some not. But when I think about um, uh, uh, AI policy in general, we're talking about one of the few topics that has existed throughout administrations. You know, original AI policies dating back to 2015 under the Obama administration, signed by the Trump administration. And now action is being put forth uh, in a number of, you know, the National Science Foundation and, and other like government entities to help address this. But 
I think what is important right now is the education of our youth. And that's where our focus should be. And I'm, you know, ultimately reminded by a quote that I think is pretty apropos of our time. And it's from the 19th century German philosopher Wittgenstein. The limits of my language mean the limits of my world. And I think that's where we can start on both the technical aspect and the ways in which we use these machines. Uh, we are running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if you have any final words regarding your book, T-AI. I'm Charles. I'm just uh, grateful for these conversations at hand and that does its best to take on these conversations. I think that's what's important right now. Learning is a lifetime sport. And for us in each of our organizations, there is no aspect of, um, of our businesses or our personal pursuits that uh, can't be influenced or changed or currently are by artificial intelligence. It's about making sure we're, we're most connected. And uh, just for what it's worth, it's likely in this space, in this burgeoning area of technology, it's important to have a diverse perspective. And perhaps the proverbial boardroom might look a little bit different over time. Uh, and it needs to be. So I think that's something that I want to impart upon uh, your listeners. We were just talking with Mr. Michael Kanan. He's the author of the new book, T-AI, Humanity's Countdown to Artificial Intelligence and the New Pursuit of Global Power. And Mr. Kanan, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thanks again. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.